The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey everyone, I'm Nick Gregorides. Welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. In today's episode, we will be speaking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a whole. It's a subject I don't know a lot about, but that absolutely fascinates me. And the guest that I have on is an exceptionally well-read, intelligent, and uh, wonderful human being. He's actually a very good friend of mine. He's been on the show before, and he makes some very well-reasoned arguments as to why we should consider these financial instruments as uh, stores of value and perhaps hedges against economic collapse and other potential negative scenarios. I'm still pretty skeptical, to be brutally honest, but listening to him has definitely softened my stance on cryptocurrencies and made me even more interested in them. But before we get into that particular topic and the interview, I wanted to let you guys know that I'm going to be injecting more of my own personality in the form of uh, monologues into the podcast. So I'll probably be doing some full standalone episodes where it's just me speaking into the mic. But also what I'm going to be doing is at the beginning of certain episodes, I will be sharing with you guys stuff that has been on my mind as of late, things that have affected me or that uh, I've been reflecting on that I that I want to share with the world and share with you guys. So expect more of that in future. And this will be the first one. I got to tell you, this is about the new film by Denis Villeneuve, the new adaptation of Frank Herbert's book, Dune. So if you haven't yet seen that film and you're planning to see it, there's going to be a spoiler or two. So I suggest you skip ahead about five minutes into the body of the episode because I don't want to, I don't don't want to ruin that film for you because it's a great film. I have been told by several friends over the course of my life to read Dune. And the truth is it's one of those books that I just couldn't get into. And that's saying a lot because I love science fiction. Absolutely love it. It's my favorite genre of, of entertainment. But there was something about the way it was written. It just didn't gel with me. I just did not find the language and the grammar and the, the structure of the work appealing. But too many people, as I said, too many people whose opinions I respect and admire were telling me to read this book and there was something valuable in there. So a couple of years ago, I tried to watch the David Lynch version, which... <laughs> Yeah, it was, in my opinion, just terrible. It was an absolute mess of a film and I could not get through more than 20 minutes of it. Uh, I didn't like anything about that film, so I couldn't watch it. But, you know, I was wanting to find out more about the story. And I watched the trailer for the new one about a year ago and something about it just jumped out of me. I I just thought to myself, this is going to be power. And I've been anticipating it for a long time. And so I went to, I didn't go to watch it last week. I watched it at home last week when it was released on HBO Max. And uh, man, I was blown away. I really thoroughly enjoyed that movie. In particular, there was a scene that it stood out in my mind and I cannot stop thinking about it. I really believe that, you know, the universe is speaking to us often through things or it's able to speak to us through things in our environment. And in particular, the scene spoke to me, the scene in in that new version of Dune. I've watched it several times over and over again, and it just, uh, I see more and more in it each time. So here's the spoiler. It's a scene in which uh, the protagonist, Paul Atreides, and his mother are trying to escape in this flying vehicle, and they're flying into this sandstorm, this incredibly powerful sandstorm that it's clear that they're not going to make it through. and there comes a point where the vehicle is, or the, the, the helicopter type vehicle that they're piloting is, it's clear that it's going to be ripped apart by the storm. And Paul Atreides is trying to pilot it and try to get control of it and try to navigate safely through it. But it's, it's all beyond him. It's clear it's just too much. 
and he goes into this almost trance-like state and he gets given this vision of uh, one of these desert Fremen, these people that live on the home world where this story is taking place. And this, this Fremen gives him this advice in the form of this, this wisdom that he shares with him in this vision. And right after that, as he comes out of the vision, Paul hears this voice saying, let go, this little voice whispering to him. And uh, you guys know, you've heard me, I'm sure, speak about on this show, this idea that there's this little voice that when you can tune into it, it will tell you how to navigate through the world in the best way possible. It will lead you to your best possible life. And uh, there was something so transcendent about the way that was done in this film. That's the scene, the way it brought it all together. And it was a a real affirmation for me about uh, the power of that voice, which I still don't know what it is. I presume it's my higher self or some form of God of the universe trying to communicate. And um, I highly recommend if you've watched Dune already, go back and watch it with a fresh set of eyes and watch that scene again. And uh, hopefully you'll be as moved by it as I was. Here, without further ado, is the episode of the show with Lawrence Dunning. I hope you guys enjoy it. Brothers, it is my great pleasure to reintroduce you to my very good friend, Lawrence Dunning. This is his second appearance on the show, and he has got a lot of interesting information to share with us. Something that's, uh, I guess it's the hot topic of the moment when it comes to finances and economics, which is cryptocurrency. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lawrence. I really appreciate you taking the time. Nick, it's so good to be back, and it's great to talk to you about this. And this is exciting for me just because I know we've been messaging a little bit privately and I feel like you're a bit, you think of it like I did six months ago, and I've done a real 180. So when we first talked about doing this, the first thought I had is, who am I to talk about Bitcoin? I'm no authority. And then I thought, actually, I'm the perfect person because I think I'm a pretty educated guy. You know, I have a background in finance. I have an MBA. I used to have a trading company. But I've done, I've done a complete 180 on cryptocurrency the last six months. So the journey for me has been so interesting on so many different levels. And it's going to hopefully, people enjoy the episode, but hopefully they'll change some preconceived things they've had about certain topics. And I think, you know, I personally think money is very important. You know, I think to live a good life, you need a certain amount of income. And Absolutely. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. Yeah. What I always say to people who say money is not important is I, I immediately say, okay, well, give me the money in your wallet. And all of a sudden it becomes very important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or it's more important than I thought it was. Exactly. But Nick, let's start by this. Let me ask you, what does money mean to you? Because I'll tell you what it means to me, but I want to hear it from you first. That's interesting. It, money is something I have been fascinated by my whole life, like absolutely fascinated by. And uh, when I just think to myself, how much of the world is run by money, it's it, money literally makes the world go round, or the modern world at least. What is it to me? It's a way of keeping score, a score of how, how much value I people are able to provide to the marketplace. It can be a way of keeping score. It can be a a medium of exchange and it can be a, the one I'm most interested in is the the idea that it's a store of energy or it's a highly, highly refined form of energy. And I, I think it's, it's all of those things and none of those things and something more. I know that's a bit of a cryptic explanation, but that's my current perspective. But no, I love that. Well, I'll tell you my story about money and me, the, the way, what it means mm-hmm. to me and, and my life about money. So for me, money is very important for me because so many people do jobs where they're literally trading, trading their life for money. And that's kind of that energy. We only have a certain amount of time on this earth. We have, only have a certain amount of energy. So the more we're giving up just to make money, that shows its importance. And for me, I was very lucky because I have a great relationship with my dad. My dad was a pilot, so he didn't—he never worked in finance. He didn't know much about money, but he told me from a young age that to be financially responsible. So he never gave me anything. He had me working. I had my first job when I was about 12 or 13. And he told me right off the bat, he said, listen, if you invest this money you're making and you invest in equities and you buy these companies, you're probably going to make more by delaying the gratification. So he kind of instilled that lesson that either... You know, if I make whatever I make on my weekly paper route when I was 12 years old, I can either spend it and buy something I don't really need, or I can wait a year or two and maybe I'll double it, or maybe I'll, you know, I'll significantly um, increase the value of it. So he kind of had that mentality. And then when I started my own trading company, it was basically, I was thinking what he was telling me, 
I was making all this money from my old trading company. I was 24 years old. I got my first bonus. I got 100,000. I bought a condo. And my brother, my older brother was like, wow, you're doing pretty well. And I was like, well, it's easy for him to say that because I didn't just make, you know, I got basically got about 5% of what I made my company. So for me, that's not doing very well, right? If you work really hard and, and your boss takes 95%, that's not doing very well. I want to have the, the fruits of my hard work. So I, I left my company. I set up my own company and I made a lot of money. I was a multimillionaire before I was 30, but I was just analyzing when I was actually preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about how I made that money. And the very interesting thing is I didn't actually make millions of dollars trading. I did okay trading, but what I did is when I started my own trading company, I bought these trading seats because what that meant is every time you do a trade, your commission was a lot less. And when you're doing thousands of trades you know, on a month, that, that adds up. So I, I bought all these um, trading seats, which are an asset, and I bought them on 50% bank leverage. And then they, over time, went up. And the money I was making from trading, I was paying down the loans quicker. So I did OK trading, but I didn't make all this money trading. I made money, and I invested in my business. And that's how I became very wealthy. So right from the bat, that's a good lesson that we have to invest in assets. And there's a million ways to make money. You can invest in precious art. I know friends that they buy and sell Porsches and Ferraris, and they make money from it because they understand that niche. You know, there's people that buy stocks. And so Bitcoin is just one avenue, but it's a, it's kind of a special avenue. But I think it's really important to understand that the, the thing I'm most proud of is when I made all this money, I was turning 30 and I had all this money in my trading account. And I realized that I had this dream about being a, a professional fighter. I was doing jiu-jitsu. I won the golden gloves when I was boxing. And I realized that I have a lifetime to make money, but I have a very small window to do something like follow a crazy dream, like, you know, be a professional athlete when I don't consider myself very talented, you know, athletically talented. And I did that. And for five years, I traveled the world. I did jiu-jitsu competitions. I ran marathons. I had 10 pro fights. And that those years for me are so priceless because I, I can never get my youth back. And I really feel like even though it cost me a lot of money, I basically gave away my trading company. I'll never regret doing that. So for me, that's like a little microcosm of my financial story, but it, it gave me such an appreciation of what money is because money, it, it enabled me to basically spend five years like living this crazy life, traveling the world. Like I haven't had a boss since I was 24 and that's what money gave me. So money, you can use it to buy stupid shit you don't need, or you can use it to buy back your freedom. And that's why for me, money is just so important. Absolutely. I think the question I ask when you, you say, make the statement, you can use money to buy back your freedom. I, I'm not arguing with you. I think that's, that's true. That's, that's a fact, right? But maybe a bigger question is why do we need to buy back our freedom in the first place? And that I don't have the answer to. I don't need that. It's said of the human experience. It's the only, it's one of the few places in the universe where you have to pay for your stay, right? As a soul, when, when you come to earth, you literally got to pay your way, right? And I wonder, I mean, I'm, I like consider myself a capitalist at heart, but I do also see that there are flaws within, within the system and that there, there definitely are better ways that go, or there, there are certain ways of doing things that are maybe more efficient than the way we're doing it now. I think if I look at the discrepancy in income between the haves and the have nots, it, it, to me, it just doesn't make much sense that you know, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and I can't remember who the third guy is right now. Um, who's also sending Elon Musk and, and all these guys are sending rockets into space and spending billions and billions of dollars. And they have these enormous, enormous reservoirs of wealth. And there are countless millions of people in the undeveloped world who are subsisting on pennies a day and living in filth and don't have access to sanitation and fresh water and just living lives of misery because of lack of resources. To me, that is an indication that as a species, we haven't mastered money. We, we, we're not using it properly. And um, that's just where I'm with, with it at the moment. Well, see, I absolutely love the fact you bring that up because we are going to be talking about that. And, and Bitcoin is related to what you just said. Um, but I think in terms, if if I'm a, I love biology and you know evolutionary science. If you look back, you know, in hunter-gatherer times, you have a lot of leisure time when you when you talked about there's no you you have to earn your life on this earth. So if if we're in a non-capitalist society, right? So we're in a trading society. 
then you're spending some time maybe fixing up your, your little hut that you built yourself. And you're spending some time with your band of brothers hunting animals to bring food back. And so you, it, the, the system we have right now, the capitalist system, it's no different. It's just like that in the sense that people have specialized because it's more efficient, especially when we, we settle down in these towns and then eventually grew into cities. But what you said is 100% true. It makes no sense that there are these billionaires firing rockets into space while there's you know, millions of, of malnourished children in, in places like Africa and South America that are dying of starvation. They can't get clean water. Like it's, it's disgusting, right? This podcast is not going to solve the world's problems. <laughs> but it is, you, you'll see one of the reasons that I'm, I'm the guy that I'm, I'm shout, I want to be shouting from the rooftops to all my friends. To, I'm not saying go and put all your money in Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency. But what I want people to get from this show is I can't fix the system that I can... We're in a system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and it's disgusting. And my my job as a human, I just feel like, is to tell everyone I know, everyone that's listens to this show, is there's a way the little guy, meaning you and I, can protect ourselves because we're we're in a terrible system. If you, it's disgusting. If you look at 2008, 2009, those CEOs did they ran their companies in the ground. They took you know multi million dollar payouts. The Federal Reserve basically. You know, anytime that the, the banks are irresponsible and they're going to collapse the whole system, the Federal Reserve come in and they basically backstop most of the banks. So we've got a system where, and take last year, for instance, last year, the Fed added over $3 trillion to their balance sheet. So what does that mean? That means that all assets are going to inflate because there's all this new money that has to get invested in places. So well, what do the rich have? The rich have assets. They have real estate. They have, they have stock, a stock portfolio. They probably have nice cars and, and precious art. All that stuff is going to go up. Whereas the, the poor person who's you know working working his ass off, maybe they have two jobs to support their family, they don't have any assets. They're renting, they're working really hard, they're literally paycheck to paycheck paying the bills. Those people are going to get crushed. So it's so disgusting. Politicians on both sides, the left and the right, none of them talk about the real elephant in the room. And the real elephant in the room is inflation is a flat tax that crushes the poor. And it, it, a lot of people talk about flat, flat tax being good. What they mean by that, Nick, is they mean a flat percentage tax. Whatever you make, you get 15% your tax rate. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a flat price tax because that's what inflation is, right? The, the price of milk goes up 20%. The rich don't even feel it, but it crushes the poor who are paycheck to paycheck. Mm. So I think what you're saying is 100% true that the system is kind of fucked, but we have to we have to just do our best to protect ourselves and our friends and our family, and that's the, sure. hopefully what people are going to get out of this podcast. Sure, yeah, no, it, it's look, I'm not I'm not like a beatnik socialist who thinks that we need to, you know, turn to communism or socialism to to fix things. I, I don't think that's the answer, and I think capitalism is the best system available at the moment. Right, it's the best of a bad bunch. Uh, I still prefer to every other previously attempted economic system. But I also think that sooner or later for us to actualize our full potential as a species, we are going to have to go beyond capitalism. And I well, don't know what that looks like. And maybe, but maybe cryptocurrency plays a role in that. And if you think so, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, all this stuff, I don't want to jump ahead because I, I did make a few notes. I wanted to keep a little structure because sure. um, otherwise we'll just talk and people get confused. So cryptocurrency is such a complicated subject. You have to talk about a few things and then at the end kind of bring it all back together. So okay. let, let's start. Um, like I said, this is not a trading advice podcast. I do, I do want to say, though, off the bat, if, you, if you've got enough time to wait out the volatility, I personally think that um, nothing is going to outperform more than certain cryptocurrencies in the next you know, five years or six years. And you'll see why. But again, this is not a trading advice podcast. So I want to start with just a couple of definitions because otherwise it would get confusing. Sure. So what is Bitcoin? So Bitcoin is just a protocol. And the protocol about Bitcoin, is, which we're going to talk about, is going to make it very special. But all it is, is a mathematical protocol and that it can be used for only money, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's like saying that the internet is only for email. And I mean, mm -hmm. you and I are the same age. We both lived through the internet revolution. And I think it's going to be the same with, with blockchain. I think soon everything is going to be on blockchain, which is the fundamental technology behind, behind Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. to talk about the philosophy of cryptocurrency, you don't have to understand you know, every single detail. And for me, I, I don't even, I've been reading so many books and podcasts and I'm reading the white papers of all these coins. And, you know, I'm not a computer scientist, but I really want to stress, like if you were looking at the 1920s in America and you could see that the horse-drawn buggy 
was kind of on the decline and the automobile was on the up. You didn't have you don't have to know about combustion in a car to know that it's going to take over from the advantages of a horse-drawn buggy. So that's mm. kind of I, I kind of want to stress that. Like I don't want to get too caught up in the details, but there's a few things that we're going to touch on because it that it's the reason why this makes it so special. But before okay. we even start, Nick, there's a great thing I just want to mention. And this is this is to do with Bitcoin, but it's also to do with life. And I think it's, especially with all the political divide in this country, I think this applies to almost everything. And it's authority figures. So there's a guy, I'm just going to pick a random guy because he's very vocal. The guy called, I don't know if you've heard of him. Have you heard of Paul Krugman? Yes, the economist. Yes, exactly right. So this guy, he won a Nobel Prize in economics and he writes for the New York Times. And so he's about as high up as, an, I mean, he's a frigging Nobel Prize winner and he writes for the New York Times. He's about as high up as you can get as, mm-hmm. as authority figures. But if you look at his track record, he's been horrendously wrong on almost everything. So for instance, in 2008, he said the crash wasn't caused by subprime alone. So he was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. 2009, he said the euro was going to break up. You know, it's still it's still around today. When Trump got elected in 2016, he said the US economy would collapse. It didn't until COVID came and then it bounced back. And he also said when Bitcoin was at $100, that Bitcoin has no utility. Now it's at $50,000. And instead of admitting he's wrong, he just keeps doubling down. And there's so many people like that. Bitcoin is so um, polarizing because there's so many people. There's people like me that have changed their mind and that they're shouting from the rooftops about cryptocurrency. And there's all these old school figures who have been completely wrong, but they just, it's their ego or whatever it is. They just can't admit they're wrong. And it's hilarious to see like a guy like him that's saying when something's at $100, it's worth nothing. And then years later, it's at 50,000. And he still hasn't changed his mind. He's still saying it's worthless. So I think the first thing, we're going to talk about a bunch of things, but I just want to stay off the bat. Be careful who you listen to. You know, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that have these titles like him, and I really disagree. And, and one of the impetuses for this podcast was you and I were talking, and you had sent me that video about the guy talking. He was kind of a crypto naysayer, and he mm-hmm. was talking about all these points why he doesn't think it's worth anything. But I, I kind of went through them all, and I would have an arg- argument to every one of those points. So sure. I just think that's such a good thing to remember. Oh, yeah, ahead, so I, I agree. Like, uh, be careful who you listen to. I love that. So. Maybe I, I could give my um, my current perspective, and that would help you bounce bounce some ideas off off that perspective. So you know, I found out about a, about crypto many years ago when I was in Thailand. I was hanging out with a bunch of digital nomads, and they were speaking about blockchain, right? Blockchain technology, and and one of them explained it to me. It took me a while to understand what it meant or the basic premise of of blockchain technology and and distributed ledgers. But I thought it was genius. I thought it was a really, really interesting idea. And, you know, I was intrigued. And there was a point where I was literally about to buy, I think, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. And this was when it was a few hundred bucks per coin. Uh, and I didn't because this, the process to buy it was so complex and there was so many forms to fill out and so many, I had to upload a scan of my passport and a whole bunch of bullshit. And I was just like, fuck this noise. I'm wasting my time with this. Uh, and obviously today I regret it. And I must be brutally honest. It's partly my ego is trying to make myself feel better about why I didn't invest that thousand, um, that thousand dollars back in the day, right? Which would have been worth several hundred thousand uh, today. Uh, But having said that, I still see several issues with it. And perhaps you can provide clarity and insight. The first is that there is definitely a mania surrounding cryptocurrency. It is absolutely beyond a doubt that there is an element of mania. You know, when when your Uber driver is telling you or is, is purchasing crypto on the while, while he's waiting for you to pick you up and he's giving you uh, uh, tips on which coin to buy and when uneducated people and and financially unsophisticated people are you know looking at this as the savior to the economic problems it starts to scare me and there's a very strong parallel many people have spoken about with a the tulip mania of holland which i think was the 15 or 1600s in which Tulips were being sold, tulips that hadn't even been grown yet were being sold as futures for thousands of, uh, I can't remember what the Dutch currency was at the time, but but ridiculously inflated values, right? And there's another parallel. I mean, we've all heard the story of back in the 1920s and the roaring 
I think the Roaring Twenties, right before the Great Depression, you'd get into an elevator and there'd be the the guy who operated the elevator. He would be giving you stock tips, right? Yes. Like you would say. Right now, now there's. I mean, I remember also a few years ago there was there were all these like crypto courses coming out, like how to how to trade crypto. Like there's no, there's nothing special about trading crypto. It's just going up. All of the coins are going up, right? It doesn't take a genius to see that. Like you don't need to do a course on how to trade crypto when you see the crypto is just increasing all the time due to this, what I believe is potentially a bubble or a mania, you know? And there's all these, there's all these very nefarious, uh, scammy overtones to crypto from what I can tell, you know, you, you see it over and over again, like all these ridiculous coins that mean absolutely nothing. Right. And that these, these pre uh, these initial coin offerings that are basically just pump and dump schemes and that are separating the uneducated from their money. And then all these like weird exchanges that, you know, I mean, I don't have a, a super uh, sophisticated understanding of it, but there's just something about it that I find inherently distasteful and distrustful coupled with perhaps my biggest reservation, which you and I spoke about and you had a rebuttal to it, but the colossal energy usage that is used in the mining of cryptocurrencies. To me, it's, I don't know, there's something off about that as well. So I want to be proven wrong because- no, no, I, let's let, well, let's, listen, Nick, let, the couple of points you brought up, I actually am so glad you did because I thought exactly the same. So for instance, the difficulty to buy, I remember a few years ago when I was talking to someone about it and I was curious, I didn't really ever take the time to understand, you know, what is blockchain, what, you know, why Bitcoin is special because it has a capped 21 million, all this stuff. I kind of heard vaguely, I didn't really understand it, didn't really take the time to understand it. And then I realized, oh, it's really hard to buy and you have to get these you know, cold wallet storages or you have to trust this exchange like Coinbase. I'm not, and I'm thinking, that just sounds like a scam. And then on top of that, I remember a few years ago when it had a big bump, um, one of its big bumps up, I had a girl, Nina, who I do jiu-jitsu with, wonderful girl. She's a nurse. She's never probably traded stocks before or anything. And I got her texting me because she knew I was a trader. And she said, hey, should I buy some Bitcoin? And then my buddy at work, Mo, owns my real estate company. He sends me a message. He's also not a trader. He works in real estate. He's a lawyer. Send me a text. Hey, brother, should I buy Bitcoin? And I remember telling my other friend who's in finance, I was like, yeah, this is obviously a bubble. You know, I've got the, you know, a friend who's a nurse and a friend who's a, he's an attorney. They're asking about buying something. That's obviously the mania. And you're 100% true. Your history is great. The biggest, you know, the tulip bubble, basically people were buying houses to buy a tulip future, like you said. And of course, that was just a huge mania. But I think the difference is, I'll say this, that just because it's like saying, well, Bitcoin is used by criminals. Well, criminals also use dollars. Does that mean dollars don't have any value? I think just because there's this crazy mania and you've got these people that are very uneducated, most people that most, especially young kids that are buying Dogecoin and Bitcoin, they couldn't tell you the difference between Dogecoin and Bitcoin. They don't understand what they're doing. They're just trying to jump on the bandwagon. So I think don't discount a brilliant idea because there's mania around it. So I'll give you a perfect analogy. In 2000, 2001, when I was just starting trading, the internet boom was happening. And you had these companies that weren't really making money. And suddenly they put a dot-com behind the company name and their IPO would raise you know, millions of dollars. And then what happened was when the stock market 2001 collapsed, a lot of these companies went under. But the ones that didn't, the Amazons, the Apples, the Facebooks, they literally took over the world. So I think that's the perfect analogy, the way I look at it. There's 10,000 coins. I personally have small positions in three of them because I, I just, I'm slowly you know, buying this with my spare cash. I don't really have much cash right now. So I, I have three out of 10,000. I'm sure you know some of the other sellers are going to do very well, but a lot of them are just fly-by-night marketing schemes. They're trying to raise money. They're trying to get caught up in the mania, but that doesn't discount why cryptocurrency, this revolution we're living through is so important. So I understand exactly what you're saying because I had those exact same views. But let's forget about the other coins for now. Let's work, let's think of, talk about Bitcoin just because it was the first one. It's you know the most expensive, and I just I want to talk a little bit about about its origins, and then I want to kind of backtrack and talk about the history of money, and then you'll understand why it's so important. Okay. If that's okay, okay so, please it, please allow okay, me. So, Okay, so it all, you've probably heard the story. So it all started with this, this guy on an anonymous crypto website, Cryptology, I think it's called. This guy is Satoshi Nakamoto. And he wrote this, he had this idea, he wrote this white paper about Bitcoin. And he, he was talking to these other internet programmers and they were kind of like, this is an interesting idea. And he started doing it actually just after the 2008 
uh, real estate crash that you know caused a financial crash, and he was very upset. So his background, he was upset at the institutions that basically just irresponsibly lent out all this money, and they knew these people would never pay it back, and then they basically crashed the system. And he was pissed off by it, rightfully so, like most people were. Who it, it was outrageous what what the banks got away with doing. Mm-hmm. So he had this idea that he by using blockchain. So blockchain is a ledger. So instead of having a ledger at a bank that keeps track of your bank balance, it's a digital ledger. But the big difference is it's open source. So 51% or more have to agree for it to be valid. So that way that it's not like in a bank where if, some, if someone breaks in a bank and changes the digital ledger, you know, Nick Gregorati's balance can go from 10,000 to 1,000. The next morning you wake up and you're like, where's my money? You know, it's one bank telling you what your ledger is. And so this, it's, it's a revolutionary idea because you don't have to have a middleman like a bank or a government in these online transactions. So that's so so if I may interrupt you. So you, so you said it's a digital ledger, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's my understanding that the key difference is between this way of accounting is the fact that it's a distributed ledger as opposed to a centralized ledger. Exactly. It's a distributed ledger that, that the majority have to agree on to make a change. Okay. So the, the whole, the, the beauty of that, because they always had that problem. Like if you buy something with a credit card and you pay and you never receive it, you have the credit card company, you can say, hey, I never got this and you get your money back. So you have these middlemen in because the, these digital, there's always this problem when you pay for something digitally, like what, Am I actually going to, is the money going to clear my account? Am I going to get the good? There's always this, that, that's why you need these middlemen, these banks and these credit card companies and these governments. So this is a way to transact digitally without a middleman. So okay. that solved the problem that computer scientists have been trying to solve since the 70s. So when someone like Krugman says that Bitcoin has no value, that is the value is, is that it was the first thing to solve this huge problem where you can transact on an open um, software without a middleman and without you know guaranteeing these transactions w- without having someone, yeah, it basically it was 50, 40 years or something they were trying to solve this problem. So he was the mm-hmm. first to solve it, but it was just an idea. And then the following mm-hmm. year, it was Bitcoin Pizza Day. It was in in May twenty second, twenty ten. This one guy he agreed to pay ten thousand Bitcoin for two pizzas. So there was a guy in Florida that said, "Hey, I'll pay ten thousand Bitcoin for a couple of pizzas." And the other guy that it was the English guy that um, he bought pizzas and he said, okay, here's the pizza. I'll take the 10,000 Bitcoin. So these two guys, guy in England and a guy in Florida, that was the first time Bitcoin went from an idea to actually being used for a trade, had value, had a currency. And that was in 2010. And then every, you know, nine months after the purchase, the Bitcoin was suddenly at a dollar. So it reached parity with the dollar. So suddenly these pizzas were $10,000. And then in 2015, the fifth anniversary, suddenly they were at you know, two and a half million. And today it's about, you know, 450 million or something. So it's been just this steady increase in them. So you're right. It's the, the trajectory of growth has been absolutely massive, but we're going to come back to that because that's, that's important that a lot of people think, well, have I missed the boat? And I want to talk about that a bit later, but I don't want to, I don't want to jump ahead too much. But so it went from this revolutionary idea to having these, these two guys kind of testing it in a trade. That was the first, you know, value, I guess. And then since then, it's just been the more people that learn about it, that actually take the time to understand that, like we said, this revolutionary technology, that's the value of it. And these people, they're so enamored by the, like the, the mathematical elegance and beauty of it. That was actually the one thing where that's how I changed my opinion on it was my dad is a mathematician. And I was talking about the mania about it about six months ago on the phone. And he said, well, do you know the mathematics behind, behind Satoshi's paper? Do you know the idea? And I said, no. And he said, it's incredible. It's it's the, the elegance and the sophistication. He said, like, you should really read about it. So that's when that's actually what started this whole deep dive down this rabbit hole was, was, you know, my dad I respect a lot. My dad doesn't have any, but he said, like, understand what it is. And that's the value, just what it is. And it's so interesting. That that's wow, that's so let me see if I can if I can put this into language. The idea of value itself is such a fascinating concept, perhaps even more fascinating than the, than the idea of money, right? Because, you know, for example, the work that I do with my clients, right? For a long time, it took me, it took me a long time to, to really put a number on the work I did because I was trying to find or trying to calibrate its value, right? Like it's, yes. it's such a weird thing, right? Like, and, and, and value is only what is only re- related to what it is so subjective, for example, well, some people value, uh, you know, certain artworks, which to me are 
pretty worthless. It means absolutely nothing to me. And then I value certain things that are worthless to other people, right? It's such a right. such an ephem- well, ephemeral concept. It's it's an agreed upon like with with currency. It's it's the, the value of a currency is something that's agreed upon by the market. It's a it's a bunch of subjective opinions that are aggregated, and then that that sets the the price, right? Or sets the the rate. Exactly. Well, let, let's look at your example. There was a guy. It was some kind of modern art thing, and he basically just had a rotten banana, and he he duct taped it to the wall at an art gallery, and it sold by some you know dumb fuck for forty thousand dollars. <laughs> so some guy paid some insane forty or fifty, some insane amount of money for literally a rotten banana taped on a wall. That just shows you there's some people that have a lot more money than sense. But basically, we you talk about value. I think value is it's only what two people agree. So we, you know, there's millions of people that agree what the value of the dollar is. But if someone with enough pockets, like someone like Musk and Bezos got together and they said, you know what, we just don't think the dollar is worth very much. We're going to sell all our billions of dollars and we're going to buy the euro. They have enough money to literally change the exchange rate between two currencies because that's how wealthy they are. But And then you and your client, well, every time you do something with a client and he pays you for your services, it's just your, your value is just what he'll pay for it. So I think that's with this Bitcoin, those two people, the guy in England, the guy in Miami with the first pizza transaction, it was they agreed that this had a tiny value because it was just kind of this intellectual experiment back then. And then over time, the more people that took the time to understand it, that's where this value comes from. Because right now, I don't know what the number is. I think it's about 300 million people around the world now in Bitcoin. So as more and more people become converse to technology, that's where the value came from. So I would say, it back. let's let's take it back a little bit to your pre- first thing where you said, it just seems like there's this crazy mania, right? The guy, the Uber driver and these crazy people talking about it. It's just because it's gone from being an idea between a guy on a cryptography website to two crazy guys in Florida and England who do a transaction for two pizzas. So it's gone from that to now hundreds of millions of people are also using it. And we're kind of, I'm trying to kind of keep a bit of order. So I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves, but I think that's the value is it's not a bubble. It'll be a bubble if it's between a small amount of people. But when you have hundreds of millions of people around the world that all appreciate the value of this, and we're going to see shortly why that is, that's what's giving its value. So I would say it's not a bubble. Okay, And then I loved your point, though, about the energy. So there's a big debate or there's a lot of naysayers that just say it's not right that it takes this much energy to make to make it so wasteful. Right. Mm-hmm. But I would say it's the opposite. I would say you have to have a cost. And the cost in the modern world is, you know, digital. The digital cost is, is energy and electricity mm-hmm. to run these computers to mine it. Because if you don't have a cost, if it's not hard to make, then it doesn't have any value. So let's Absolutely. look at the gold. Gold's been a store of value for five thousand years. It's the oldest currency, you know, in in um, the you know the only currency that's endured over thousands of years. Nothing else has been close to us as enduring. And it's precisely because it's fucking hard to make gold, right? You got to gold mining is really hard. So if it was easy, you'd get people that would buy up these huge, you know, gold mines and they would just mine it, and there would be gold everywhere. But it's really, really hard, and it's rare, and it's difficult to get out of the earth. So you have to have some kind of difficulty to give it value. So I would say the opposite is I, I don't want to talk too much about the other coins. And truthfully, I don't know that much about them. But mm-hmm. Dogecoin or Doggy Coin, that coin for me is, is such a joke because the whole point of it is it has no cap. So you it, it, it's just like the US dollar. They can just keep printing trillions of dollars and mm-hmm. there's no cap on the US dollar. It's the same with Dogecoin or Dogecoin. But the, the reason Bitcoin is special is because number one, it's hard to get. And number two, there's only ever going to be 21 million. So it has a finite ceiling. And I think mm-hmm. they're two really important points. Uh, yeah, no, it, that, that makes sense to me. And it has changed my perspective a little bit hearing you say that. So, okay, next point. Okay. Yeah, please continue. I'm, I'm intrigued. I, yeah, okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit about where we are on the cycle. Because like me, when my friend, I think it was a Bitcoin first went over 5,000. And in that cycle, I think it went from five to 20 and then back down to about five again. And I remember when it crossed five, I was thinking at the time, I didn't know anything about it, really. I hadn't taken the time. But I thought, based on human psychology, I said, here are two people that have never traded. They're trying to buy it. They're asking me about it. They're just two friends that I have. There's got to be millions more people around the world that are caught up in the mania. So even if it's going to go back down to something, it's probably going to go up three or four times since from now. And it, that's exactly what it did. It went from five to 20. But the thing I was thinking of was, well, I've probably missed the boat. You know, if I didn't buy it at $100, I've missed the boat. Now it's at 5000 And so it's important to see where we are on the cycle because 
there's about, like I said, 300 million, maybe maybe closer to 400 million now that worldwide that own Bitcoin. Now, 300 million divided by 8 billion people gives us an adoption rate of only 3.5%. So there's very few people. And I look at all my friends, very, very, most of my friends don't have any. And the ones that do have a tiny bit, very, very, very few people that I know. And I know quite a lot of people, not, not even friends, friends, acquaintances, family members, everyone that I know, very, very, very few people have any. So compare that to the early days of the internet, where 3.5% of people had the internet. You're talking about 1994, which is before Amazon's even created. So I think that just gives us a great global picture of where we are in the cycle. And then if you look at it, it's great to compare to the internet because the internet was very revolutionary and it was fairly recent. And it's a great comparison, I think. And Bitcoin right now is growing at about twice the rate of the internet did during its highest growth period. But yet it's still only adopted by three and a half percent of the population. So you haven't missed the boat. So I think those two statistics are just fantastic. Interesting. Where I mean, so let's let's push this idea out, right? At the moment, three and a half percent of the population own Bitcoin. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, Bitcoin is not used as a currency. It's just not. Yes, it's it's, it's not. Like, yeah. the US no one, dollar is still used as a, as a, the main global currency for sure. Right. Yes, and Bitcoin itself is is. I mean, its value is you know linked to the dollar. Like one Bitcoin. I don't know what the current what the current rate per Bitcoin is. It's my understanding. It's it's above fifty five thousand or close to that. Like, yeah, fifty thousand. So the time the time we're speaking, but again, it's it's denominated in dollars, right? Like yes. So that says that the, the dollar is not done, right? Like if if that's where the value of Bitcoin is coming from, is is from the dollar. So what what do you think is going to happen? Yes. What is what is the world? Do you think the world will leave these or stop using these fiat currencies? These government issued currencies and eventually everyone will just use cryptocurrency as a means of exchange? Is that what you think is going to happen one day? So I think it's going to be, well, I think we're living through fascinating times. And like I said, I, I'm definitely not the expert. I'm honored that you have me on to talk about this. I'm someone that's, I'm a, I'm a fascinated observer while I'm also, you know, I'm reading a book a week on this, listening to podcasts, reading white papers. I'm fascinated by this. I think, I think it's so fascinating what we're living through. So I think it's going to be some kind of hybrid well, let me tell you about this about the dollar, Nick, because I've, I've learned so much myself, and I think this stuff mm -hmm. is fascinating. I've heard people say that Bitcoin is digital currency, but you know what, what digital currency is? The fucking dollar. The dollar is digital currency. So back in the day, dollar was backed by gold. And then when mm -hmm. Nixon came off the gold standard, we just had the 50th um, anniversary of that. It became just paper. So if the Fed wanted to increase dollars, they would turn on a printing press. But in 2020, when they added $3.2 to the Fed ledger, they didn't print 3.2 trillion. They literally added zeros to the Fed ledger. So the dollar is a digital currency. Every dollar in existence today, there's only, I think it's about seven to eight percent that's actually paper dollars. The rest is digital dollars, literally plucked out of plucked out of thin air. So I think that's a fascinating thing to remember. Absolutely. Yeah. And that and that's something I, I think about all the time. It's it's something that I again it's linked to this idea of value, right? And perception yes. and you know, that's one, one of the reasons, like, to me, I, I, I question, it's not that I question hard work, but I question when people are overly attached to that concept, right? Yeah. Like, they're, they're, like they're married, like I have to work hard. It's like things have to come to me in a difficult way because it's been my experience that most of the most, the most precious things in my life didn't come to me through hard work. They were given to me, right? They were like, like my family and my body and the air I breathe and, so I don't know how I'm, I'm, I'm trying very hard to tie this into my, my, my worldview, my perspective and to share it with you. But this idea of, of thinking that like you do work, let's say I go and teach jujitsu for five hours a day and I get paid X amount, right? And I go deposit that money. I don't even deposit into the bank anymore. I get sent a Venmo payment by a, by the client, right? Like that I've been yes. teaching jujitsu to. Um, or let's say uh, some guy works for the city and he's a street sweeper, right? And he spends... Mm -hmm you know, 60 hours a week sweeping the streets and you know, emptying garbage cans, or whatever. And then his, his pay is deposited directly into his bank account. What is that? What is that actual thing that is happening? All it really is, is as you said, is a, a digital ledger somewhere that is sitting on a piece of silicone on a hard drive somewhere in some computer storage facility that is yeah. just having the binary, the ones and zeros shifted over to reflect mm -hmm the new amount that's in his account. And to me, that that is beyond mind-blowing. That, that, that no one well, asks more questions about this fucking blows my mind. 
Yes. Well, Nick, I love it. I love the fact you said that. And I wish we were having this high because that would be even more, <laughs> even more, even more freaky. But that, well, there's a great, uh, when I first started trading, it was just before September the 11th. And I remember I was in Amsterdam and we woke up and we woke up, I oh, know, sorry, we were ahead. So it was in the early afternoon in Holland and I was on the trading floor and planes were crashing in, in the buildings in New York and everyone just ran out of the trading pits and they were crowded around these little computers around the edge of the exchange like, what the fuck is happening? America's being attacked. It was the crazy, like, no one knew what was going on. And my company, just by luck, they they had a position of these options where they were always set for black swan events. So anytime a black swan event happened, they would make a lot of money. So they made, I think, a million dollars instantly. And then it was a small group of guys. And then that night, the, uh, I've been, been at the company a couple of months. I was completely new. I was a trainee trader. And the boss pulls us all aside. There's about 10 of us. And he said, guys, listen, I know to you, it look, just looks like binary numbers, ones and zeros, but we have the opportunity tomorrow to make what we might make in a whole career, like in, in a day or two. Like we can make a whole, you know, years and years of hard work we can make in a day because it's going to be so crazy. So he said, don't be confused. He said, it might be just binary figures on a digital ledger, but it's real fucking money, guys. And he was trying, he was trying to kind of rally the troops. And uh, the next day it ended up being not, it, it was it wasn't even, they didn't really make that much money. It was, it was all, it was, it was very anticlimactic in the trading world that the point was it was a good reminder that you're right it is all if you're especially if you're a little high at night and you're thinking what the <laughs> fuck is money you've got all this money in your account it literally is nothing but if you use that you know you can buy a house in malibu or you can take yes. six months and live in hawaii so it, it is something so don't forget it's something it is it is no absolutely numbers, but it is something and and it's it's this is the so it, one of my my spiritual teachers explained how money has become it's, it's being refined as a form of energy more and more. So it started, if I'm not mistaken, with as cattle, right? Like literally that was the first, one of the first mediums of exchange was cattle. Now, if you think about it, that is not the most refined thing out there. Like there's a, like a 600 pound ox or whatever. And then it was shells and then it was refined precious metals. And then it was paper and coins, right? And then it was, I don't know what the next evolution was, but now we're at the point where, where it's just, it's almost just an idea. It's not, there's no, there's nothing tangible. Money is just an idea, which is one of the most refined forms of energy there is. Ideas are the ultimate forms of energy, right? Like just these abstract ephemeral things. And, and I, I think it's really interesting. It's, it's Nick, beyond Nick, interesting to me. The, the fact that you, I love the fact you, you, you're saying this stuff because you are hundred percent right. So money is energy and it's an idea. And what is this greatest idea that cryptologists have been trying to solve? It's Satoshi's blockchain and, and Bitcoin. So you've just, in a roundabout way, explained what gives cryptocurrency its value. It's a crazy, crazy revolutionary idea. But let, let me, uh, you, you've segued beautifully in what I want to talk about next, which is a little bit about the history of money. Because when you understand the history of money, you understand it's going to hopefully make everyone a bit more libertarian and understand how badly the government fucks the people. So let's let's look back a little bit. So like you said, there's been a lot of things, whether it's cattle, seashells, precious stones, eventually gold and silver, a lot of things have been used for money over, over history. And gold has been used for over 5,000 years as a store of wealth. And the dollar, since it became a fiat currency, since Nixon left the gold standard, has been 50 years. So literally, gold has been around 100 times longer than the dollar. So when people think about this dollar, like it's this monolithic thing that will always have value, I, I disagree. Like the British Empire was in decline for generation or two before the pound sterling didn't become the world's reserve currency. So the decline of America has already started financially, and the, but the dollar can still be the reserve currency for a decade or two. That doesn't mean it's not in decline. It doesn't mean there's serious problems that aren't around the corner. So let's think about this. Since Nixon went off the gold standard, there's been 600% inflation in the dollar. And let's look at the government's track record, because this is horrifying. So um, Roosevelt in the 20s, he basically stole money from the people of the US. He said it's illegal to hold gold and everyone had to turn their gold in at risk of being imprisoned for 10 years. So they, they took people's gold, they gave them $25 an ounce. And then he turned around right after and he said, actually, the value of gold is now $35 an ounce. So imagine that you're forced under the risk of imprisonment to give your gold to the government in exchange for paper. And then suddenly they decide that the paper's worth 40% less once they've taken your gold. Like imagine that it's basically a flat tax of 40% on all the war-abiding citizens in the US. It's fucking disgusting. So that, that's the first thing. And then, and then when Nixon came off the gold standard, you know, every year that 
every year the dollar is getting eroded because the government are very irresponsible. So to, to give you, just to, to show you how bad things are. So this 50-year dollar fiat experiment, in we are right now, the US is at 120% of their income versus their debt. So their growth, their, the money they're making from, you know, what, what, how does America make money? What's well, taxing its citizens? That money it's making can barely even service the interest on the debt, the amount of debt they have. In the last century, 51 out of 52 countries have declared bankruptcy when they've got over 130% of income to GDP. So we're right there. We're at, the, wow. we're at this tipping point. Now, one, minute, we're a, one minute to midnight, as they say. Nick, exactly. So we're, we're a very egocentric society, right? We think we think that the, the, the West is the best in the world. And, you know, I'm an immigrant um, from, from England and my dad was a retired pilot. So I was very blessed to travel to all these countries. And, you know, I worked in Russia. I spent a long time, I was boxing training in Cuba. I spent um, a month in Venezuela. I've been to countries where the, um, the so socialist and communist regimes have crushed the people. So while I'm saying how bad it is, what's happened to the US dollar, basically being stolen from the people ever since Roosevelt, it's way worse than these other countries. And I think there's a great guy, Andres Antonopoulos. He writes a lot about Bitcoin. He's got three small books and they're called um, The Internet of Money, volumes one, two, and three. And his big thing, what he's trying to say is, he says his big message is not invest in Bitcoin, you can make a lot of money. His message is there's only out of you know seven and a half billion people in the world, there's only about one billion have access to high banking, credit, international finance like we have in the West. And it's primarily the upper classes in the Western nations. And you have six and a half billion people that have no connection really to the world of you know sophisticated money. And they operate in these cash-based societies and he said, instead of trying to think, well, how can we get banking to these people? Well, banking only makes bankers rich, right? It doesn't, it's not for the people. It's, it's a bad business model. He says, why don't we just unbank the world? And I think that's kind of the message that I'm so I'm so excited about is I do okay. You know, I live in the Western society, I work hard, I have investments, I have assets, I have a good education. I'm not worried about myself, but I feel for those people in these countries. I've lived, I know, I remember my, my boxing coach in Cuba taking me to his house and showing me how it's, you know, just falling apart. I remember there are people on the street in Venezuela talking to me uh, about how bad the system is and how lucky we are to live in the West. Like I've had those conversations. A lot of people that are kind of socialists or they lean, they lean socialists, they come from actually good, I think they come from a, a position of, of, it's a good position. Like they they want equality and they want, they, they look at these billionaires, they think and it's They disgusting. want a better world. They, they want yes, a better exactly. world. exactly. Yeah. What they don't understand is capitalism rises all ships and yes, it leads to huge inequalities, but socialism and communism has failed every single time it was tried. And it's not, I always thought it was a problem of incentive. I always thought, well, if you're not motivated and the state's going to take your money, why would you work? You know, like, I always thought it was, but it's not that. There's a great economist, von Mises. He's an Austrian economist, and he, write, he writes about it. And he says, these socialist countries, they've solved the problem of motivation. Because in Soviet Union, Ru Russia, if you weren't working, you'd get killed or you'd get taken to you know, the, the, the camps, the Siberian death camps. So they solved the problem of motivation under fear of death or imprisonment. The problem is, in a socialist system, you don't have supply and demand. You have a state telling you, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to plan from above which is incredibly inefficient in a static environment. Now you add a changing environment with technology and things changing, they're completely incapable to, to operate in that kind of environment. And that's why the, you see in these countries that basically you know, everyone, everyone is a lot more equal because they're all starving and they're struggling. And it's this tiny group at the top, the elites, they're all doing very well. So I think the lesson of history is I've got friends that are super... Um, you know, Republican and and they're they're fiscally Republican. They just they get so frustrated when they see people like oh, Bernie and socialism. They don't understand that most of these people. I think they do mean well. When I was young, I was probably way more socialist than I am now because I didn't know any better. You know, I hadn't worked, I hadn't had employees, I didn't understand these complex things. So I think that's a that's a, a really good reminder. Mm. So okay, let's look. I, I really appreciate the fact that you've stated that you're not an expert, but you clearly have an informed opinion, right? And that's one thing I've always loved about you. You you read and you study and you're open-minded. And to to start kind of winding, winding down this or wrapping up this conversation, can you give those people whose interest has been piqued by, by what you've said, a roadmap for, for their own further education from this point? If they want to learn more about cryptocurrency, more about blockchain, more about Bitcoin, where should they start and where should they go from there? Great question. 
you can Google Satoshi's white paper, and I think it's nine pages, and you can just read it on the internet. And that will give you a bit of the technical information to understand, you know, about the protocol. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's a couple, I think, I just think, you know, it's, it's very hard for people to, most people don't have much, they, they don't really sit down and read books anymore. But I think for mm -hmm. something like this, there's a couple of books that I think are just, that they're really, really, really important. So I'm going to send you some, I'd love you to put them in the show notes. There's a couple of books that I really, really like that talk about mm -hmm. this. I think one of the one I'd recommend right off the bat is called Money You Can't Fuck With. And it's a small book. It's about 150 pages. And it just talks about how badly the dollar is getting eaten away. And I yeah. think that's for people in the West, I think they should start with the dollar because that, that's their currency. They're going to understand a lot more about that. And then just kind of go from there, listen to other podcasts, you know, try, try and just do your research because I would never want a guy to listen to us talking and say, okay, I'm going to put all my money in Bitcoin or, or you know, what Ethereum or, or these coins, because here's the thing, they're incredibly volatile. And Bitcoin right now is at 50,000. Could it in theory go back to 10,000? Yeah. Before it goes to 100? Of course. Yeah. So it's the, the best advice I heard from someone. He said, put an amount of money that if you lose it, you're not going to be out on the streets. Whatever your net worth is, put you know 2%, 5%, 3%, something small, because it has such asymmetrical upside if it goes from a three and a half percent adoption rate to a 70, 80 percent adoption rate, then you have insane upside. But at the same time, the volatility is not going to give you sleepless nights. Mm. It reminds me of uh, something I was taught long ago by one of my mentors, which is never invest in anything you don't understand. Yes, and, uh, exactly. I think that's one of the keys. Yeah, like a, a lot of people just are, they see Bitcoin go up, they see people become overnight millionaires, they see they have FOMO and then they just jump on the bandwagon. And that is sure you may make a lot of money, but it's not good like practice. It's not, it's not, how, how would I put this? It's kind of like you haven't learned the lesson, right? You haven't. Yes. And, and you will, there's an interesting thing about money that I've realized is like, it's one of the reasons I tell my clients when they're looking for financial advice, I say, if you must have a, well, it's two things. The first is no one cares about your money as much as you do. And if you must have a financial advisor, make sure that they have a higher net worth than you do, because you don't yes. want to, you don't want to um, entrust your money to a level of consciousness uh, around money that is lower than yours, right? That's just stupid. It doesn't make sense at all. So if if you make, like, let's say a guy puts a thousand bucks in Bitcoin and makes a hundred thousand dollars, it's likely that he'll just lose that again because his consciousness isn't developed to the point where he understands the investment vehicles that he's been working with and, and, and understands the energy of money and all those types of things. Yes. Well, a couple of things I just want to say before we wrap this up real quick, Nate. On the point you brought up earlier about it being difficult to buy. So I hold my cryptocurrency in certain exchanges. So there's like BlockFi or Coinbase, or there's a, there's a few that that are that they've been around long enough that you know, a lot of them are regulated with the SEC. And, and it's unlikely that one of them is just going to you know, go bankrupt and steal your money. So when you hear about people, one thing that put me off Bitcoin at the beginning was you hear about people that they had, they they lost their private keys and they lost their money. And, and now it's worth you know millions of dollars and they can't get access to it. So that always put me off. I thought that's kind of shady. So I think at some point I had this conversation with a good friend of mine where I said, listen, if I put my money in Coinbase and something happens in the world and Coinbase goes under, well, I'm going to have to worry a lot more about money because I'm going to need guns and ammo and water and food because there's going to be rioting in the streets. And I think there's some truth to that. You you don't have to be completely crazy and say, I want to have like a cold storage wallet that's never been connected <laughs> to the internet in a safe. But that's actually what I think some of these companies like Coinbase do. I think they, they do hold some of it in these um, underground military bunkers in Switzerland and things like that. So they mm -hmm. do have a lot of it, you know, cold storage offline. And the Bitcoin itself, the network has never been um, breached. So I think and that's the other thing too, is there is certain risks and they could be a way that the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is I think the way I explain why it's so impenetrable is because you'd have to get 51% of the nodes to agree in order to steal it. And that would take so much power that not only is it just almost impossible for someone to generate so much electrical power, but it's just it's not it's just it's not really worth it because it's going to cost you as much as you're going to get. Basically, that's kind of my understanding why it's so impenetrable. Mm -hmm. But I think people should learn about it in terms of the. I heard someone else say this. It's a very nice analogy. You and I were in our early forties, and one of the reasons like it took me this long to learn about it is because I'm fucking busy. 
I'm tired. I have a nine month old, I have a job. I'm trying to do jujitsu. I'm trying to, you know, do other things in my life. Sure. I don't have that much time. I don't have that much energy. And we become very stuck in our ways. And this, I, I think if someone gets one thing out of this podcast, it's, it's yes, you're stuck in your ways, but you don't have to, you can still break out sometimes. And I think sure. the reward for actually taking some time to learn about this and maybe invest in it, the difficulty is, can be compensated by the immense award. Oh, uh, the immense reward from doing yes. it. So I think yes. that's one thing. And the other thing I, I think we should talk about it, it really briefly is it's so fascinating. So do you know why the Roman Empire collapsed, Nick? Apathy. Apathy. Yeah, like they they lost some of their the cohesion. That's definitely mm-hmm. a reason. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them was they ran out of they ran out of money to pay pay the army. So it was actually a financial thing. And if you look, if you look at like that awful genocide in Rwanda between the the Hutsis and the Tutsis, yeah. Tutsis, yeah, exactly. So they had, I think they had religious differences, but there was also a huge economic difference mm. between the two. And they're in, and that was one of the poorest countries in Africa in terms of resources. So you can follow, you, you talked about money at the beginning. Money is fascinating. You can follow the money trail almost behind everything. There's, there's some kind of money trail. And so right now, look at the dollar losing its value. Like last year, they added 3.2 trillion to the Fed ledger. This year, they're talking about three and a half trillion for this bailout. And for me, I've been in America in nearly 20 years. America has never been more divided. It's never been more angry. It almost feels like there's an intellectual civil war going on between the left and the right. And a lot of it, I think, is to do with money. So I think this is really, it's a fast, hopefully we've piqued people's interest by having this conversation, but it's a fascinating thing to think about political stability and and sound money, they've been linked through 5,000 years of history. And I mean, we're in such great, like you said, we're one minute to midnight right now. If we stopped adding to the US debt and we paid $1,000 a second, it would take 8,000 years to pay off. I mean, it's just so <laughs> insane. And, that's and that's if we stopped adding to it, Nick, but we're talking about this $3.5 trillion bill. So I just think we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to ourselves. We yeah. owe it to our family to learn about this because it's it's a way like I'm I'm disgusted by the way the governments basically steal money from the people. And I'm mm-hmm. I was libertarian and I'm almost anarchist these days. Like I'm just so far away from I just hate government because I just see the corruption <laughs> at all levels in every country. And I guess I guess you're always whenever you have systems, right? The guys at the top are always going to be a bit corrupt. So maybe I need to relax. But I just <laughs> I, I'm so excited philosophically by what cryptocurrency represents. Because it represents open, public, borderless, uh, decentralized, permissionless blockchains. It disrupts everything. It's like, yes, it's the biggest disruption I think you and I are going to live through aside from the internet. So I just think while I went, when I went through this rabbit hole, I was so stuck in my ways of thinking. And I mean, Jesus, Nick, if there's one guy that should have been buying Bitcoin at 10 bucks or a hundred bucks, it's me because I'm a libertarian. <laughs> it's a libertarian currency and I'm a background in finance. Like, but I missed the boat, you know, I completely... But like I said, this it's still early days if you can deal with the volatility. But I just think it's such a beautiful, intellectually, there's one thing I hope you might maybe appreciate more. It's that forget about, we, we talked about the dollar because we live in America. But a lot of these countries, people, they're having like crazy inflation every month. They, they're basically losing money every month. Mm. And if you think, I'll leave you this last thought, Nick, because you're, you're such a sweet guy. I know you care about humanity and you care about your brothers around the world. Mm-hmm. If you're a migrant worker and you work in the US and you're sent, say you live in your family's in Central America, you come to the US, you're sending money home. The only way you can send it home is things like Western Union. And Western Union takes something like a 10% fee. So mm-hmm. basically, these, these migrant workers talking about, we're going to bring this conversation to a full circle, okay? What is money? Well, they're working 12 months of the year and they're sending 11 months of that home to their family. And fucking Western Union take 1%. As it take one month of their life a year. It's it's mm, it's, it's criminal. It's like if you care about humanity, you are so, so all these institutions. I'll give you one last thing. So I know I'm ranting, but I'm very passionate, as you can tell. <laughs> I'll give you one last thing, Nick. What banks do is they 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 take your money and they give you whatever the interest rate is, a quarter of a percent, and they lend it to other people at 16, 17, 18 percent. When you don't pay your credit card bill, they're charging you 17, 18 percent. It's so criminal. The whole banking industry, like it's it's really disgusting. Having been in finance. And just seeing it, it's such a corrupt business. And that's why a lot of these people are terrified. That's why China is trying to crack down on Bitcoin is because they China controls the yuan. They control their currency. The thought of them having a decentralized currency that the people can use, it's terrifying for China. So I think the more you learn about this, it's, it's really hard for you not to become a passionate advocate because Absolutely. not only... 
does it present great investment opportunities despite the volatility? But also, like, I care about people. I care about humanity. So it's kind of my mission. I'm so grateful you have me on to share with your <laughs> audience. But I'm yeah. that guy right now where I'm standing on my rooftop fucking screaming to everybody. This is a big deal. Like, don't be like me who I was so stubborn. I was so reticent to take the chance to learn about this. And, you know, like I said, it, it doesn't mean that things can't go down. It doesn't mean there's not going to be crazy volatility, but we are living through a revolution, my friend. And, and I really think it's going to shake up everything. And it's, it's oh, fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, thank you so much for sharing this passion with me and with the listeners as well. And there's two people in my life who, you know, I consider myself very, very well-read, you know, really like that's one of the things in my ego like in, in my egoic structure of my identity, who I am, I, I consider myself very well read, right? And I have two friends. One of them is, you know, as well, his name's Artem. And the other is you, who, when I saw their bookcases and their book collections, I just realized I'm actually not as well read as I think I am. Right? <laughs> and when a guy like you tells me to wake up and pay attention to this, I'm going to. And I just thank you so much for that, my brother. And I truly appreciate you. No, I mean, Nick, it's, it's so great to have you on. And yeah, the reason I'm so passionate about this is because everything I've learned, you know, I have a background in, I have an undergraduate degree in history and I've studied a lot of finance because I used to work in finance. And the reason this is such a powerful idea is because I realized it brought all the strands of my knowledge together. So mm. if it if it had been kind of a Ponzi scheme, the more I learned about it, the more I'd realized that you well, this it. doesn't this doesn't back up with history. It doesn't back up with you know. But I know the history of money. I know the history of these of the U.S. the last hundred years. I know the history of these other countries and dictatorships. And it's such an incredible thing. It just it truly has blown my mind. And it, it's, I'm so passionate about it. My wife thinks I'm, thinks I'm crazy. Like I'm just, she always sees me in <laughs> another book on Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, because that's the thing is I'm learning too. And I'm just, even if I, I wouldn't make a dollar from it, I would be fascinated by it intellectually. So I think that's, it's such a, such an interesting thing. And hopefully all mm -hmm. we can do is pique the interest of people. And my job today was just to pique your interest. Cause I know I, I love the skepticism when you'd send me those messages and I'm like, man, Nick's a skeptic. I can't wait to talk, you know, in depth <laughs> with him about this. So thank you so much, my brother. I really appreciate you, you know, being open-minded and you, I know you had your, you had some things that you mentioned where you were, you were a little bit reticent, but you weren't, you weren't, you were very open-minded in this conversation. That just sums up who you are. You're such an open-minded person who's always looking, you know, to fulfill his own potential. So I really, that's why I admire you so much. Love you, Lawrence. Chat soon. Thank you, brother. It's hard not to be moved by Lawrence's arguments. He has an infectious optimism that he brings to everything that he becomes involved in. And that's one of the reasons he is so good at so many things. However, after recording that show, I started to do a little bit more research on crypto. And once again, my skepticism started to come to the forefront. I haven't yet made up my mind about it, but I am not convinced that it is the solution to the world's financial problems. I think there's something to be said for fiat currencies and government regulation of financial markets and financial instruments and currencies. It's too long to go into here, but I guess the long and the short of it is that I'm just not entirely convinced either way. However, Lawrence did bring some great wisdom that I thoroughly enjoyed. I wanted to ask you guys, if you could go and leave a review on iTunes for the show, we're at 92 reviews so far. It's my understanding that if you get to 100 reviews or more, Apple's algorithm uh, starts to favor your show more than it did before. So that would mean a lot to me if eight of you guys, just eight of you could go out and review the show. Go ahead, do it right now. It'll mean the world to me. Until next time, have an amazing week and keep the faith.